0: The scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 3 through 13, and then 21 through 31. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, and the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is God's word.
1: Well, thank you. As you guys just heard, my name is Jeff Skipper. And I'm the church planting apprentice here at Church of the Redeemer, and so thank you for your support and um, patience uh, as, we, as we got to be part of this church, and um, my boys got to be baptized. Thank you for that. Well, we're working through the Old Testament. Uh, we're still in Genesis, and we're looking at the story of God, and today we're continuing the story of Jacob. And the story of Jacob, the patriarch spans about 12 chapters in the book of Genesis, which is about a quarter of the entire book, so it goes without saying that his story is important. Jacob lived a life of striving, struggling, trickery, and restlessness. His name even means grasper or deceiver, and he lived up to it. One commentator said, few characters in the Bible start out as unlovely and unlovable as Jacob. Jacob would have been hard to love, and he was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham was the one to whom God made the great promises, the promise that I will give you offspring, I'll give you this land, and the entire world will be blessed through you and your family, and he was the son of Isaac, and he was the brother of Esau, and to sum Jacob up, he spent much of his life trying to take matters into his own hands, relying on his own abilities, not trusting in God's faithfulness, and he made a mess of things in the process made a lot of people mad, he lived in fear for many years, and he had quite the dysfunctional family, Uh, but despite his scoundrel nature, God had his relentless grace set on Jacob. Jacob could run, hide, ignore, strategize, and do many other tactics, but God was going to catch up with him, and the two of them would have some encounters throughout the years, but we see it reach a climax in Genesis 32 with a wrestling match, of all things, and this scene will end with the sun rising on a bloody, bruised, broken, weak, limping, but new man. Jacob relied on his own strength. He lived half-heartedly committed to God for over 20 years, but God never gave up on him. His grace was relentless. It was that never stopping, never giving up, always and forever type of grace we talk about that wasn't based on Jacob, but it was based on God's own purpose. At, what, at one point in Genesis 28... The famous story of Jacob dreaming of this ladder. God shows up to him, and and God is at the top of this ladder, and he looks down on him, and he confirms the promises to Jacob. He says, I will give you this land, Jacob. I will give you offspring. I will bless the world through your family. I'm with you. And he says, I won't leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Those are pretty firm words. And Jacob wakes up, and he's excited. He seems to commit himself to God. He, he does this whole vow ceremony. He commemorates the place, renames it, makes a vow. But we still see that his heart is not all in on what God is doing. It, it seems like Jacob basically says, I hear you, God. That's great. Thank you. I believe you. But surely it's not that easy. I'll take care of things from here. That's kind of the way Jacob's life plays out. And he proceeds to make a mess of things. And it's not until chapter 32, Jacob finally surrenders. And he was not a willing participant in this deal in chapter 32. God has to break him down and twist his arm and make him say, Uncle, pretty much is how it looks. And so we got three points this morning. Pursuing grace, the problem. Crippling grace, the transformation. And limping grace, the new day. So if you will, you know, follow along with me in your worship folder. First, pursuing grace, the problem. Because we're only spending two weeks on the life of Jacob, and it spans about 12 chapters, it's important to take some time to do some background work and fill in some gaps in case you missed last week. So I will repeat a little bit from last week. But Jacob was wrestling from even before he was born. He was born grasping his brother Esau's heel in chapter 25, which would foreshadow much to come. Uh, you, you, You may have a brother who's been bad, but he's probably got nothing on Jacob. Uh, Jacob grew up all of his life. You can imagine he's around the house and he hears the promises that God made to his grandpa and his father, his family. He's heard that God has made these promises to us, but he didn't trust God to see them through. He, He relied on his own strength and his own wit to see them fulfilled. And as we mentioned, he was a deceiver. Uh, Just to mention two quick things as examples, the way Jacob kind of took matters into his own hands and deceived his way to taking hold of the promises of God that God said, I will give you these things. Uh, First of all, he stole Esau's birthright in chapter 25. And this birthright gave Esau the firstborn status. It made him the rightful heir of the family. This means he was held in a position of honor. He was head of the family, and he would receive a double share of the inheritance. So, I mean, that's pretty important. And in short, what happens is Jacob takes advantage of Esau's hunger. Esau was a guy of the field, and he comes in starving and exhausted, and Jacob is cooking some stew, and Esau says, Give me some of that. And Jacob, with his opportunistic, sly eye, says, "Uh, Only if you'll sell me your birthright, I'll give you some of this. And he had to be Esau, surely on the verge of death, and uh, I would imagine, or close to it. And so it happened. And so uh, he, he gave up his birthright. So on the one hand... Esau was guilty for being dismissive and neglecting his birthright, but I would say even more than that, Jacob was guilty of exploiting his own brother, as siblings do, as I see well daily, uh, in a a moment of weakness, taking advantage of that that sibling. And so Jacob stole his brother's birthright, but it didn't stop there. He also stole Esau's blessing in chapter 27. uh, As Drew talked about last week, just to recap it, when nearing death, a patriarch would pronounce special blessing on the firstborn son. And in this chapter, this scene particularly, we see that this family had some major problems. Because first of all, Jacob was his mama's favorite, and uh, she steps in here. Isaac, his dad, was old and couldn't see. So Esau goes out hunting, and Rebekah, Jacob's mom, says, Hey, Jacob, dress up like your brother, and go trick your dad into blessing you instead of Esau. Pretty messed up situation, and uh, he did it. And Esau comes in from hunting, and he finds this out. And in the blessing to Jacob, Isaac says things like this. He says, let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. That's what he tells Jacob. And as you can imagine, this doesn't sit well with Esau, uh, but, but he complains about it. And Isaac basically says, sorry, buddy, life is tough. What, what's done is done. And here's what I have to say to you. He says things like this in chapter 27, verses 39 and 40. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. And away from the dew of heaven on high, you shall serve your brother. And so Esau, like any big, hairy, angry brother would do who's already been done wrong twice. He says, I'm going to kill this joker right here. I've got his number. He, he says it in chapter twenty-seven, forty-one. 41. He says, when dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And his mom overhears it and says, hey, Jacob, your brother's going to kill you. Uh, he vows to kill Jacob. And this significantly impacts Jacob for many years. This led to Jacob living in fear. He, he lives on the run for over 20 years of his life. And this threat on his life is always in the back of his mind. It's always weighing on him. And he knows that one day he's going to have to go back home and bury his father. And he's got to settle up with old Esau. And Esau's going to be waiting on him. And so we see in the big picture of everything that, that for Jacob taking things into his own hands, not trusting God, using his own strength and wit, to get what he wants, he ends up alone with a bunch of broken relationships behind him, just a path of destruction behind him. But I think what's amazing about Jacob's story, given that background, is that even in the midst of all of this mess that Jacob is making, God in his grace is still pursuing Jacob. He's blessing Jacob while he's away for over 20 years. He makes him prosper in land and in property and offspring, and in his grace, he's also making Jacob weary. God's taking all of the mess of Jacob's life and using it to show him, hey, Jacob, this is what happens when you live a self-reliant life apart from me. So you should trust me. And I see this kind of with my youngest son, Isaac, who you could see, you know, is a a little on edge, to say the least. Uh, He comes to me, and he brings me things, and I've proven myself capable of doing anything Isaac needs to be done. Anything going on in Isaac's little life, I've proven I'm trustworthy. I can probably handle it. And he comes to me with things, uh, and he'll he'll extend them out for me to help. And as I reach out to grab him, he snatches it back, and he goes, no, 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 no. And he does this time and time again. He he wants help, but then right at the moment when I try to grab it, he snatches it back. And, And then I watch him struggle and make himself mad as he tries to do this thing. Parents, you've probably seen something like this with your kids. He gets weary, and he becomes a mess in the process. He won't let daddy do it. Even though I've proven to him I can, he takes it into his own hands. He snatches it back and really just torments himself. And so before we look down our noses at Jacob, this crooked, bad, deceiving brother, let's realize and confess, we're all little Jacobs. We are all little Jacobs. You might not have stolen a birthright. If you have, I want to hear about that. That's interesting. Uh, I would love to hear about that. Uh, But we've left a path of destruction in our wake by trying to take matters into our own hands. And in our sin, we've made a mess. And no matter how many times God has proven himself to be trustworthy and capable, we snatch our lives back from him and say, no, 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 no. And we proceed to make a mess of things. In our prideful and sinful self-reliance, we've alienated ourselves from God and from others. That's why our greeting is so significant, as we talked about earlier. And we go on the run and we seek to find the things that, that, that God tells us only he is capable of giving us. And this leads to a restless, wandering, destructive life. Because like Jacob, God has made a promise to us. And the promise is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. This is God's good news to us. Just like Jacob, he said, I will, I will do these things. I promise these things to you. And the gospel says God has done this for you. It's not advice or instructions. It's good news. Although you've made an absolute mess of things and you haven't trusted in God and he owes you nothing but justice, he's made a way for you to be right and made right and made whole through his son, Jesus Christ. But so often we respond like Jacob and we say, you know what, that sounds great. I believe it, thanks, but I'll take it from here. Jacob gave God every reason to give up on him. But through all the years, he never gave up on Jacob because, listen, his pursuit of Jacob was based on his own purpose and grace, not on the performance of Jacob. You see, grace is not contingent upon a person's worthiness uh, of receiving it. That's contradictory of grace. God's grace depends on his own purpose. First Timothy 2.9 says God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, Jesus before the ages began. It's because of his own purpose and grace, not because of our works. Same thing with Jacob. God's heart was set on Jacob, and he was pursuing Jacob in his grace, even in the midst of Jake, Jacob making a complete mess of his life and other people's lives, God was pursuing him in his grace. But here's the thing. This wasn't going to be the uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, whispering, soft kind of grace. This was going to be the I'm going to grab you and break you kind of grace. God's pursuing grace would become uh, crippling grace. God's crippling grace, the transformation. After all the messy episodes we see in Jacob's life, The defining moment comes here in Genesis 32 when he he wrestles with God and this strong, self-reliant Jacob is broken. He becomes a broken, beaten, uh, begging, weeping Jacob. And it's actually in this moment of weakness where he finally becomes what God intended him to be. It's it's here where Jacob uh, encounters and is transformed by God's grace and it has nothing to do with Jacob's goodness because I think the text goes to great lengths to show us that Jacob nor his family had any goodness. Uh, he didn't earn it or deserve it, but it was solely on God's grace. And so we have to set this scene up in Genesis 32, what we read about. Jacob's been gone for over 20 years, and you can read about that in chapters 28 through 31. He's been uh, working for wives, essentially. Uh, if that interests you and you don't know about that, read that. Um, But he's making his way back to the promised land. God calls him in chapter 31, verse 3, and he says, Jacob, it's time to go home. And Jacob obeys. Out of obedience, he gets up, and he starts heading home. But he knows he has this one big thing on his mind. He knows I have to settle up with my brother Esau. And so we see in verses 3 through 7 uh, this initial appeal. He hears Esau's on the way. And so his first plan of action is to send out messengers to Esau. And, and the text, we'll read verses 3 through 7 and follow along with me. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And notice the language. Jacob's doing all he can. He calls him my lord Esau. And he says, your servant Jacob. And he said, that I may find favor in your sight. He's working hard to make things better with Esau, and the bad news comes. The messengers come back and say, hey, uh, here's the deal. Esau's coming, and he has 400 men men with him. And Jacob says, it's time to pray. <laughs> let, let's just start praying right now. Somebody is coming to kill me and they have 400 men. We better pray. This is the first time we see Jacob pray in the scriptures. It's the First time he's recorded as praying in verses nine through 12. He's in big trouble. He basically says, God, don't let my brother kill me. And we see some growth in Jacob. We see him confess his sin. He says, I'm not worthy. And he goes on to pray for God to deliver him, and he appeals to God's promise to him, right? The promise that didn't mean a whole lot from the beginning. He's like, oh, yeah, God, hey, you remember that promise, what you said? Yeah, how about that? Uh, So let's make sure that comes true. Uh, And so he, he, he seems to do all the right things, but after praying, he goes right back to manipulating the situation. Right after he prays, we see this appeasement in verses 13 through 21. Jacob goes to these desperate measures, and here's what he does. He sends out 550 animals in five separate groups with the same message, right? And every group comes, and they say, hey, Esau, Jacob is behind us. Jacob tells all his men, he's like, yo, go do this. 550 animals, tell him every time, I'm coming. I want to do all I can to appease this guy. He is, he's, he's covering all his bases, pulled out all the stops, and this threat is weighing on him heavily, And so he does all of these things and it gets late and he sends his family across the river into the land. And Jacob's all alone. Jacob's finally by himself and this is probably the darkest night of Jacob's life. He knows he's going to meet Esau very soon in the morning and it's probably not going to be pretty. Uh, He's thinking about his past, his bad dealings, the threat that's on his life. And he's probably up praying. And in the middle of the night, We see in verse 24, a man of great strength grabs him, right, and wrestles him all through the night until morning. And so, spoiler alert alert right here, this is the grip of God's grace. The grace that had been pursuing and and holding Jacob all of his life literally grabs hold of him and an all-out brawl ensues. And you can imagine how tiring this is. If you've ever wrestled, it's, it's pretty tiring. I wasn't a wrestler in high school or anything, but it's, you're sweating, and, and, and in the middle of the night, if someone jumps you, you're confused, right? Frustrated, there's pulling and tearing and rage all throughout the night, and Jacob can't get out of the grip of this man. He don't even really know what's going on, and unknown to him, he's wrestling with God. And this is a metaphor for Jacob's entire life. Verse 24 says that this man wrestled with Jacob. And what's really cool here in the Hebrew, the original language, uh, there's, there's a word play that's going on. The word wrestled and the word Jacob are, are similar. There's only one letter different. And Hebrew is pretty popular, famous for word play. So uh, someone reading Hebrew would read this as, someone came and Jacobed with Jacob. So at this point, someone is finally coming out Jacobing Jacob. Because Jacob was a wrestler, He was grabbing his brother's heel out of the womb. He was a brawler, a deceiver, right? A trickster. And he's getting out jacob And hear what God is saying. Listen to this. God is saying, wake up, Jacob. Wake up. I'm the one you've been wrestling with all of your life. That's why you're so restless, and you spend all of your life on the run, and you have so much destruction in your life, and you have an emptiness that you seek out to fill throughout all these things, but you can't be filled. You've sought everything else out. You're restless because the problem underneath all of your problems is that you've been wrestling with me all of your life. And until you come to terms with that, until you realize that it's not Esau, it's not your dad, it's not your wives, it's not your crazy uncle, Right? It's none of these people. Until you realize that it's me that you've been wrestling with all of your life, you'll never understand yourself, you'll never know me, and you'll never have peace. How true is this for each of us? Until we stop pointing at everything else and blame-shifting and justifying ourselves, we'll never have peace. We will live lives of bitterness and restless striving, always running and spinning our wheels and just sinking lower and lower. Because, listen, the problem underneath all of our other problems is that we are at enmity with God. Jacob just thought his biggest threat was Esau, but it wasn't. His biggest threat was God. He misdiagnosed the problem. And and that's that's a bad deal when you misdiagnose a problem, like a health problem, and you're treating it one way for a really long time, spending a bunch of time, money, and energy only to find out it was something else. My car did this a couple weeks ago. I thought it was the battery. It wasn't the battery. So I thought it was the alternator. It wasn't the alternator. And it was the starter, right? This is what Jacob's been doing all of his life. He's been running around, and and he misdiagnosed his ultimate problem. And it was with God. And because of our pride and sinful self-reliance and our desire to live life on our own apart from God, our biggest threat is God. And until we come to terms with this, we'll be lost. Now, this whole scene is is pretty shocking because, yes, Jacob was conniving, right? But in this situation, he's finally obeying God. If you look back in the last chapter in verse 3, God tells Jacob, Hey, Jacob, it's time to go home. And he obeys. And he actually risks his life to obey God because he knows his brother is going to kill him and he has to come to terms. If if I go home, I've got to see my brother who's threatened my life. And so how does God respond to a man who risks his life to obey him and who's seeking him in prayer and who's in fear and at the end of his rope? How does God respond to that? He assaults him and cripples him for the rest of his life. This is not what you expect when you're reading this. God's unpredictable. But what God is doing is he's breaking Jacob down and wrestling him into a transformed life. God is breaking Jacob down and wrestling him into a transformed life. And so we see this go on. We see this a pleading in a confession. As the, as, the, as the match goes on in verse 25, we see his hip is dislocated, if you read the text, by a simple touch. And at that point, Jacob realizes this is no normal man. This is a supernatural opponent, superhuman opponent I'm facing. And this is the crippling grace of the hand of God. And the two finally begin to talk. And Jacob, who is hurt now, really hurt, refuses to let go. He says in verse 26, I'm not letting go until I'm blessed. And what's interesting about this, every time I've read this story, I thought, man, Jacob is so hard-headed. Like his hip is broken and he still don't get it. But what's interesting, what what sheds light on this text is another passage of Scripture. In Hosea 12.4, it tells us that Jacob is actually weeping here. Jacob is weeping. This is not a proud demand. I'm not letting go until you bless me. No, this is a tear-choked plea from a man who once seemed ruthless and unbreakable. And he's weeping and he's begging that he would be blessed by God. And, and, and God asked for his name in verse 27. And Jacob says it. And this is more significant than what it seems at first glance. This is not, this is not just Jacob saying, you know, he asked what his name is. This isn't Jacob saying, yeah, my name's Jacob. This is a confession. Jacob has reached the end of himself and is saying, I'm Jacob, I'm a deceiver. I've been a grasper all of my life. I've cheated my brother twice. I've left a path of destruction in my life uh, to to get what I want. I've relied on my own abilities to fulfill my sinful ambitions. I've resorted to my own strengths and, 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 and wit, not you. And I've been wrong. And here at this moment of weakness, this confession, Jacob is humbled. And this confession evokes an amazing transformation by God's grace. He doesn't just receive a blessing, he receives a whole new name. And that's significant. This is an entire, God is announcing a, a, an entire new character on Jacob. The old is gone, the new has come. Jacob has declared a new creation. In verse 28, God says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And that word Israel means you have fought with God or God strives. And essentially, what this means is you have fought and prevailed, Jacob but it's been in your weakness. You finally succeeded, but it's been in your weakness. Jacob's at the end of himself. His own power is over, and through his weakness he's made new. And this is the relentless, pursuing, crippling, and transforming grace of God. The problem underneath all of our problems is that we're set against God living self-reliant lives like Jacob, and we sinfully try to create meaning and obtain blessing through other means and ways, trusting in our own abilities, and we've, we've got a huge mess on our hands. And we're not reconciled to God, and therefore we are his enemies deserving death. And the only way for God to change us is by graciously breaking us and wrestling us into a transformed life rather than comforting us into a transformed life. And my theory on that is that we're just hard-headed and hard-hearted. And comforting us into a transformed life won't work. He has to wrestle us into that. God lovingly becomes the enemy of your old self and brings you into weakness by breaking you and waking you up to the reality of your own helplessness, powerlessness, weakness, and sin. That's God's grace and his love towards us. God broke Jacob to save him from himself. He's finally powerless to wrestle any longer. He can't fulfill his ambition in his own strength like he's tried to do all of his life. And his true strength is found when he's weak. My question to you is Has this happened to you? Have you been broken by the grace of God? Have you, like Jacob, made a great confession of your sin? Because Jacob had a name that he had to own before God. He had to own the name of swindler, deceiver, grasper. What's the name that you need to confess? Is it faithless, self-reliant, comfortable, uh, joyless, cynical, controller? Uh, If you're like me, you can probably claim all of those to a certain extent or a few of them heavily. God initially broke me when I became a Christian. Christian, uh, He broke me. I, I, I remember weeping. I, I seen my need for a Savior. I saw my sin. But this probably happened even in a more full way when my first son was born, Jonathan, who had many complications. And it was there for the first time in my life that I truly felt utterly helpless God brought me to a place where none of my talents, strengths, wit, or anything else could change the situation. He grabbed me and he wrestled me me, and he showed me how weak and powerless I was and how self reliant I was. And I was wounded since then. God wounded me. And, and, And in a way, I've walked with a limp since then. I'd come to faith before that, but there I was more transformed. Now, I know I know my experience pales in comparison to many of your situations and what you've been through because I know many of your stories. And your stories are much more heart-wrenching than mine. The wrestling match looks differently in each of our lives. But listen, at some point, if you're a Christian, you have wrestled with God and he's probably taken everything out from under you that you thought was holding you up and the only thing left was you and him you can probably point to a time like that in your life. And in in those experiences, you realize that it's complete foolishness to rely on your own strengths or talents or wit to obtain blessing because blessing is actually obtained through the grace of God breaking you and humbling you and teaching you to trust in him alone to work on your behalf. So the thing is, although our biggest problem is with God, he's also the only solution. And he's provided that in his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, like Jacob, he was alone. And it was night. And he was grabbed and wrestled by God. And he was in agony and he was praying, and he, he he was even sweating, as it were. The scripture says, "Great drops of blood." And God grabbed him and wrestled him, and he wasn't just touched on the hip and crippled, but he was crushed and destroyed and smitten by God for our sins. It was a hand of wrath that grabbed Jesus. It was not a hand of grace, and he was beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross. And on the cross, Jesus wrestled with the full weight of the wrath of God, and he held on and essentially says, I'm not letting go until they are blessed. And this was for us. You see, Jacob, listen, he only got a blow from God that woke him up. But Jesus took the full blow of justice from God for us. He became a curse for us so that we would receive blessing and also that so that we would only receive blows of grace and love from God. So, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me let me say, you are striving against God. All of your angst and restlessness goes back to the fact that you've been wrestling with God. No one else. Scripture says that. The Bible and your own conscience condemns you, that you have sinned, you have offended a holy God, and for that, you deserve justice. You've missed the mark. And because of that, you're condemned. And listen, God's holiness and his perfection demands that he deal justly with you. He can do no other. He is a perfect God. And the Bible also says that no amount of your talent, Skills, smiles, good looks, wit, cleverness, uh, degrees, accomplishments, relationships, or anything else can make you better. And there is a date set by God on which he will judge everyone. And left alone in your sin, you do not want the rod of justice dealt to you, but that is what will happen. But maybe God is laying his strong grip of grace on you even now in your life, even this morning, as your conscience condemns you, you know you've fallen short. There's a moral monitor going off inside you and you feel guilty for a reason and that's a good sign because that alone is the work of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you the good news. Romans ten nine says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And four verses later, Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So essentially, every single person has two options. You can wrestle with the full weight of God's wrath and not prevail and be crushed justly. Or you can experience his grip of grace because Jesus wrestled with the full weight of God on your behalf. And so I urge you, if you're not a Christian, to call upon the name of the Lord and to repent and to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, who has worked on your behalf. And at that moment, you will be made right in his eyes. And you will become a son or daughter of God. You will, become, you will be forgiven and reconciled and made whole at that moment. And then you will grow in the Christian life. But at that moment, when you call upon the name of the Lord and believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. If you're a Christian... The good news is, because of the work of Jesus on your behalf, God only wrestles you in love. Now, first of all, maybe this morning, if you're a Christian, you need to feel the crippling blow of God again. Maybe you need to be broken and feel the suffocating grip of grace to wake you up because in certain areas of your life, you've become self-reliant again. And you need to be reminded that you are weak and wounded, sick and sore, and, and need to flee from your self-reliance and rest only in His grace. And in, because in light of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, because of this truth of what He's done for us, and that it's only by grace, all arrogance or self-reliance or blame-shifting or, or a super-hypercritical spirit is done away with, because we know that we're a product of grace alone. And instead, you are transformed, and you'll walk with humility and tenderness and weakness and dependence upon God. That's what it looks like to be transformed. So maybe you need a blow from God again this morning. You need to feel his grip again. Or maybe you're not in need of another blow this morning, but you can't seem to get a break from the blows of God. I, I bet some of you can, can relate to that. And it feels like God's just hammering you in life right now, and the blows keep on coming, and you're just wondering, is He even for me or against me? Well, our call to worship that Chris read from Hebrews uh, it, it speaks to that. He disciplines the one whom He loves. He disciplines the one He loves. If you are not disciplined, you're not His child. That's what the Scripture says. It's painful at the time, but it yields this fruit of righteousness. It's for our good. So if you are experiencing these blows from God and you're almost beginning to doubt and you are just downcast, can I encourage you to look to Jesus and hold on and embrace the blows that you're experiencing from the hand of God and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me and help me understand, even though it hurts so bad, help me look to the cross and remember that you are me, and that this right now, going on in my life, this suffering is for my good. You are doing it because you love me. And if you weren't doing it, uh, then the scripture says there's a good chance I'm not even a child of God. Tomorrow, our community Bible reading, one chapter is from Job 5, verses 17 and 18, you'll read this. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He's our biggest problem and he's our only solution. His grip that feels so tight right now, the grip that feels like it's killing you and you can barely breathe is a grip of grace. So beg him not to let you go, even if it hurts. And he won't let you go. Because that's the promise of God and his faithfulness to you and Jesus Christ. Now, after this transformation that Jacob goes through, this wrestling match of him being broken and renamed, we see a new Jacob. Israel, meet a new day. And this is limping grace, a new day. Jacob says he's seen the face of God and yet he's lived. And he's in, he's in awe because Exodus thirty-three twenty says that no man can see the face of God and live. So this is probably a way of saying that Jacob has had a, a personal close intimate encounter with God. And he names this place Penuel, which means the face of God. And if you look in the scripture, verse 31 says, uh, Jacob sees a new day. It's a, it's a symbolic moment. We have this beautiful picture of Jacob meeting the dawn, bloody, beaten, and bruised, and limping. But he's a new man. He passes and which means he's entered the promised land, And up until this point, he's been outside of the land. Everyone else, he sent everyone else into the land. But this symbolizes Jacob being outside of God's blessing, being outside of the land. But now, after this transformation, he's in the land, under God's blessing, as a new man, and he's never the same again. The crippling grace of God left a permanent mark on him, and Jacob prevailed when he surrendered in weakness. And we, too, can experience this sunrise. It says the sun rose on Jacob. Because Jesus wasn't only crushed for our sins, but he rose from the grave. The Son of God victoriously rose on the morning of the third day as he said he would, maybe even even, uh, limping, if you will, like Jacob. Because Genesis 3.15 says, The true offspring of Eve would be bruised on his heel by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. And what that means, that's Jesus taking the sting of death for us and crushing death in the process. He conquered by being conquered. He demolished death by dying. He triumphed over the grave by rising again. And so we too, like Malachi 3.2 says, the Son of righteousness shall rise upon us with healing in its wings. That's the ultimate new day that we taste now. And it's real if we are in Jesus Christ. And furthermore, Revelation 2 says one day we'll receive a new name that only he knows and we know. But even now we've received new names. Because once we were called not a people, but now in Christ Jesus we are called the people of God. This transformation, this new name, comes by grace. It's a grace that hurts, but one that's given by by a loving father, it can't be earned and, and it can't be grabbed like Jacob thought, but it grabs you and it breaks you and it transforms you, and you will, you, you will be wounded and you will walk with a limp. As the church of God, we, we limp on. Our Savior leads us, He's the Savior of the limping saints. Like an army after battle, he's out in front of us and he's fought the battle for us and he leads us to our father's house and we grab on one another's shoulders in weakness, clinging to him and we joyfully limp together full of hope and assurance and undergirded by the strong, steady, loving, tight grip of God our father. Now as I, as I end, after the wrestling match, it's not happily ever after <laughs> for Jacob after he's transformed. In in chapter 35, he'll lose three people that are dearly close to him. He'll lose his wife, Rachel, during childbirth. He'll lose his father, Isaac. We'll see his firstborn son, Reuben, commit this heinous, rebellious sin against him. Life is tough for Jacob. Most would say, some would say it's probably tougher for Jacob after the transformation than it was before. I'd say that's true if you're a Christian. But it's but but he was a new Jacob. He was one full of hope. And just, we see this. When when Rachel is dying and she's giving giving birth, she looks at Jacob and she says, name him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. That was her dying wish. And so Jacob's sitting there holding this newborn baby and his wife's dead body is laying there. And surprisingly, he doesn't honor her last wish. He names the child Benjamin. Son of my right hand. We see a new Jacob. One of faith. One of hope. And we see him tell his family to put away the idols. And he finally leads leads them in worship of the one true God. And he goes on to bury his father. And he's not a coward. He does it bravely. It's a new Jacob. And we see him and Esau. The last verse of chapter 35 says Jacob and Esau buried their father together. After all that mess we see this reconciliation. He was a new man, a limping new man, but a new man, one of hope and faith nonetheless. Jacob's 12 sons would go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is the the further development of God's plan to bless the world, and we'll see this story as we continue to work through the Old Testament. And ultimately, those 12 sons are a shadow of Jesus' 12 disciples who are sent out into all the earth with the message of the gospel, which is the same mission that we continue today as children of Abraham. Our Father is good. If you're in Christ, He is for you because He wrestled the wrath of God on your behalf. And He's faithful to His promises. So I urge you to cling to Him because He promises to never leave you or forsake you and never, ever let you go. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace and who pursues us. And Lord, in your grace, you also break us, and and through breaking us, you transform us as much as we may not like it. God, teach us to embrace your discipline. Teach us, uh, if we are Christians, to embrace the blows that we experience from you because you do it, because you love us. And God, help us to remember that it's okay to be weak because you were strong on our behalf. God, help us to limp in our Christian life uh, in humility and tenderness and weakness. And God, I pray for anyone here uh, who who yet is not in Christ. And Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to their hearts. They would see their sin and see they are helpless and they need to be broken. And only then when they reach that moment of weakness will they be made strong. God, thank you. Be glorified uh, in our lives and through this church as we worship together. And in Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen. Uh, For some of us, the most frightening thing in the world we can imagine is that God would put his hands on us the way he did on Jacob. Uh, When in reality, what should frighten us is the thought that he would take his hands off of us. And so what it means for him to promise to bless us is not that he's going to leave us alone and let uh, things go the way we want them to and keep us uh, nice and safe and comfortable. The the promise uh, that he's going to bless us is uh, what we find in John 10 where Jesus says, the Father is greater than me and no one is able to snatch you out of his hands. There's nothing in heaven and earth that can overpower uh, the grip of grace upon your life. And that is good news. And that is the promise of this benediction that God's hands, if they're on you, they're not on you to harm you. They're on you to bless. Even if that blessing feels Uh, like you're being crushed. Receive by faith, then. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, receive the promise of this benediction, then. That God's heart towards you, that all of his strokes are strokes of love because his wrath has been satisfied by the death of Jesus and there's nothing left but blessing for us. And so receive the blessing, then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.